Long History, the Southern United States in the 1500s, Part 12, Route in Mississippi. Hello everyone and have you listened to Parts 1 to 11 of this document? If so, I hope you're looking forward to Part 12. We're well into the document now, but for any new listeners, this text describes an expedition from the mid-1500s to explore large parts of the southerly United States of the US, from Florida to Arkansas and most of the states in between. This expedition was headed by a man called Hernando de Soto and it began in April 1538. This document was written by a Portuguese man known as the Gentleman of Elvers. We're on to episode 12 now of a 25-part series, so I'm sure the previous episodes are just a few clicks away. And if it takes your fancy, please subscribe to be informed of the release of the rest of the episodes in this series. There is still lots to come. Just to sum up what's happened so far, however, after taking a very circuitous route from Florida to Alabama via Georgia, the Carolinas and Tennessee, 18 months after his first arrival in North America, Hernando de Soto is in central Alabama. He was not welcomed by the local chief Tuscaloosa and events eventually led to the Spanish attacking the local people and killing, by this account, 2,500 of them. Hernando de Soto then moved on, determined to find country worthy enough of justifying this journey. Here in this episode, De Soto travels west, reaching a town called Chicasa, said to be just over the border from Alabama in today's Mississippi state. So here we go with the southern United States in the 1500s, part 12, route in Mississippi. The cacique of Chicasa came to visit him many times. On some occasions he was sent for and a horse taken on which to bring and carry him back. He made complaint that a vassal of his had risen against him, withholding tribute and he asked for assistance, desiring to seek him in his territory and give him the chastisement he deserved. The whole was found to be feigned, to the end that, while the governor should be absent with him and the force divided, they would attack the part separately, some the one under him, others the other, that remained in Chikasa. He went to the town where he lived and came back with 200 Indians bearing bows and arrows. The governor, taking 30 cavalry and 80 infantry, marched to Sakechuma, the province of the chief whom the cacique said had rebelled. The town was untenanted, and the Indians, for greater dissimulation, set fire to it, but the people, with the governor, being very careful and vigilant, as were also those that had been left in Chikasa, no enemy dared to fall upon them. The governor invited the caciques and some chiefs to dine with them, giving them pork to eat, which they so relished, although not used to it, that every night Indians would come up to some houses where the hogs slept, a crossbow shot off from the camp, to kill and carry away what they could of them. Three were taken in the act. Two, the governor commanded to be slain with arrows, and the remaining one, his hands having first been cut off, was sent to the cacique, who appeared grieved that they had given offence and glad that they were punished. This chief was half a league from where the Christians were, in an open country, whither wandered off four of the cavalry, Francisco Osorio, Reynoso, a servant of the Marquis of Astorga, and two servants of the governor, the one Ribera, his page, the other Fuentes, his chamberlain. They took some skins and shawls from the Indians, who made great outcry in consequence and abandoned their houses. When the chief heard of it, he ordered them to be apprehended, and condemned Osorio and Fuentes to death as principals, and all of them to lose their goods. The friars, the priests, and other principal personages solicited him to let Osorio live, and moderate the sentence, but he would do so for no one. When about ordering them to be taken to the town yard to be beheaded, some Indians arrived, sent by the chief to complain of them. Juan Ortiz, at the entreaty of Baltasar de Gallegos and others, changed their words, telling the governor, as from the cacique, that he had understood those Christians had been arrested on his account. 
that they were in no fault, having offended him in nothing, and that if he would do him a favour to let them go free. Then Ortiz said to the Indians that the governor had the persons in custody and would visit them with such punishment as should be an example to the rest. The prisoners were ordered to be released. So soon as March had come, the governor, having determined to leave Chicasa, asked two hundred tamemes of the cacique, who told him that he would confer with his chiefs. Tuesday, the 8th, he went where the cacique was to ask for the carriers, and was told that he would send them the next day. When the governor saw the chief, he said to Luis de Moscoso that the Indians did not appear right to him, that a very careful watch should be kept that night, to which the master of the camp paid little attention. At four o'clock in the morning, the Indians fell upon them in four squadrons, from as many quarters, and directly as they were discovered, they beat a drum. With loud shouting, they came in such haste that they entered the camp at the same moment with some scouts that had been out of which, by the time those in the town were aware, half the houses were in flame. That night it had been the turn of three horsemen to be of watch, two of the men of low degree, the least value of any in the camp, and the third a nephew of the governor, who had been deemed a brave man until now, when he showed himself as great a coward as either of the others, for they all fled, and the Indians, finding no resistance, came up and set fire to the place. They waited outside of the town for the Christians, behind the gates, as they should come out of the doors, having had no opportunity to put on their arms, and as they ran in all directions, bewildered by the noise, blinded by the smoke and the brightness of the flame, knowing not whither they were going, nor were able to find their arms or put saddles on their steeds, they saw not the Indians who shot arrows at them. Those of the horses that could break their halters got away, and many were burned to death in the stalls. The confusion and rout were so great that each man fled by the way that first opened to him, there being none to oppose the Indians, but God who chastiseth his own as he pleaseth, and in the greatest wants and perils hath them in his hand, shut the eyes of the Indians, so that they could not discern what they had done, and believed that the beasts running about loose were the cavalry gathering to fall upon them. The governor with a soldier named Tapia alone got mounted, and, charging upon the Indians, he struck down the first of them he met with a blow of the lance, but went over with the saddle, because in the haste it had not been tightly drawn, and he fell. The men on foot, running to a thicket outside of the town, came together there, the Indians imagining, as it was dark, that the horses were cavalry coming upon them, as has been stated, they fled, leaving only one dead, which was he the governor smote. The town lay in cinders. A woman with her husband, having left her house, went back to get some pearls that had remained there, and when she would have come out again the fire had reached the door, and she could not, neither could her husband assist her, so she was consumed. Three Christians came out of the fire in so bad plight that one of them died in three days from that time, and the two others for a long time were carried in their pallets on poles borne on the shoulders of Indians, for otherwise they could not have got along. There died in this affair eleven Christians and fifty horses. One hundred of the swine remained, four hundred having been destroyed from the conflagration of Mauilla. If, by good luck, anyone had been able to save a garment until then, it was there destroyed. Many remained naked, not having had time to catch up their skin dresses. In that place they suffered greatly from cold, the only relief being in large fires, and they passed the night long in turning without the power to sleep, for as one side of a man would warm, the other would freeze, 
Some contrived mats of dried grass sewed together, one to be placed below, the other above them. Many who laughed at this expedient were afterwards compelled to do the like. The Christians were left so broken up that what with the want of the saddles and arms which had been destroyed, had the Indians returned the second night, they might with little effort have been overpowered. They removed from that town to one where the cacique was accustomed to live, because it was in the open field. In eight days' time they had constructed many saddles from the ash, and likewise lances, as good as those made in Biscay. Chapter 21. How the Indians returned to attack the Christians, and how the governor went to Alimamu, and they tarried to give him battle in the way. On Wednesday, the 15th day of March in the year 1541, eight days having passed since the governor had been living on a plain, half a league from the place where he wintered, after he had set up a forge and tempered the swords which in Chikasa had been burned, and already had made many targets, saddles and lances, on Tuesday, at four o'clock in the morning, while it was still dark, there came many Indians formed in three squadrons, each from a different direction, to attack the camp, when those who watched beat to arms. In all haste he drew up his men in three squadrons also, and leaving some for the defence of the camp, he went out to meet them. The Indians were overthrown and put to flight. The ground was plain and in a condition advantageous to the Christians. It was now daybreak, and but for some disorder, thirty or forty enemies might have been slain. It was caused by a friar raising great shouts in the camp, without any reason crying, To the camp! To the camp! In consequence, the governor and the rest went thither, and the Indians had time to get away in safety. From some prisoners taken, the governor informed himself of the region in advance. On the 25th day of April he left Chikasa, and went to sleep at a small town called Alimamu. Very little maize was found, and as it became necessary to attempt thence to pass a desert, seven days' journey in extent, the next day the governor ordered that three captains, each with cavalry and foot, should take a different direction, to get provision for the way. Juan Danyasco, the controller, went with fifteen horse and forty foot on the course the governor would have to march, and found a staked fort, where the Indians were awaiting them. Many were armed, walking upon it, with their bodies, legs and arms painted and ochred, red, black, white, yellow and vermilion in stripes, so that they appeared to have on stockings and doublet. Some wore feathers and others horns on the head, the face blackened and the eyes encircled with vermilion to highlight their fierce aspect. So soon as they saw the Christians draw nigh, they beat drums and, with loud yells, in great fury came forth to meet them. As to Juan de Añasco and others, it appeared well to avoid them and to inform the governor. They retired over an even ground in sight, the distance of a crossbow shot from the enclosure, the footmen, the crossbowmen and targeteers, putting themselves before those on horseback, that the beasts might not be wounded by the Indians, who came forth by sevens and eights to discharge their bows at them and retire. In sight of the Christians they made a fire, and, taking an Indian by the head and feet, pretended to give him many blows on the head and cast him into the flames, signifying in this way what they would do with the Christians. A message being sent with three of the cavalry to the governor informing him of this, he came directly. It was his opinion that they should be driven from the place. He said that if it was not done they would be emboldened to make an attack at some other time, when they might do him more harm. Those on horseback were commanded to dismount, and being set in four squadrons, at the signal charged the Indians. They resisted until the Christians came up to the stakes. Then, 
Seeing that they could not defend themselves, they fled through that part near which passed a stream, sending back some arrows from the other bank, and because at the moment no place was found where the horses might ford, they had time to make their escape. Three Indians were killed and many Christians wounded, of whom, after a few days, fifteen died on the march. Everyone thought the governor committed a great fault in not sending to examine the state of the ground on the opposite shore and discover the crossing place before making the attack, because, with the hope the Indians had of escaping unseen in that direction, they fought until they were broken, and it was the cause of their holding out so long to assail the Christians, as they could, with safety to themselves. After the massacre of the previous episode, Fernando de Soto heads west, his reputation seems to go ahead of him, with each subsequent group being more prepared and more willing to battle with the Spanish. The expedition has been underway for more than two years now and is heading through Mississippi State, heading northwestwards towards Tennessee's western border and Arkansas. Two years in and De Soto still hasn't found that rich land he is looking for. Will he ever find it? In the next episode, De Soto gets his first sighting of the Mississippi River, also one of the first sightings by Europeans of that river. Crossing over, he will enter Arkansas. Thank you everyone for listening. As you've made it this far, as usual, please don't forget to like and subscribe and share if you can. So that's all for the Southern United States in the 1500s, Part 12, Route in Mississippi. Thank you and goodbye.